You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show for Star Trek, and I am just one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and I am so excited to be here. Casey, it feels like forever since we've been here to talk about Star Trek books. It does. Yeah, it's just every time we talk, it's, you know, we have a lot of catching up to do, but it's always fun. And I just, I can't wait to talk about today's book and, um, yeah, just really get into things. You know, I'm super excited, not only, um, because we're back, but, uh, I, I saw your rating for this book on Goodreads and then I had my rating and they are different. And I think we're going to have a <laughs> fight on our hands, but the, Coolest thing about this episode uh, so far is the fact that we are introducing a brand new host here to Literary Treks. And Jonathan, it is so good to have you here to join us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've, I've been listening to the show for a while, so it's cool that you invited me on. I, I mean, it's, it's great for me. Um, so just so people have an idea... Uh, with my new job and everything, it's much harder for me to, to podcast and, um, it just, time is, is not as easy. Uh, and so Jonathan and Casey are going to be taking the brunt of the Literary Treks podcasting so that this show continues for you because I don't, I maybe, I don't, I want to ask you guys, like, to me, it seems like, and maybe I'm biased because I started Literary Treks, but it feels like in some ways Literary Treks is pretty unique in Star Trek podcasting because it's not covering shows and everything. It's doing something that is such a big part of the Star Trek universe, but not a lot of people talk about the books. And there's so many of them. Yeah, when I first got into listening to podcasts, I um you know, I found Mission Log, you know, because I wanted a Star Trek podcast, and that was kind of one of the ones that came to the top. But, you know, some of the other podcasts that I was finding, like you said, were all about the shows. And I was like, you know, I really like reading the books. I just, I wonder if there's something like that. And just kind of did a little search, and Literary Treks is like the only one that came up, and I was so excited. So I started, you know, I went all the way back to the beginning, whatever point that was. And, you know, to have the longevity that we've had, too, I mean, there's so many Star Trek books, but, you know, other shows that I've listened to, other podcasts that I've listened to, may, they might do a book segment, they'll interview authors when there's new books that come out, but I do feel like we're in a really good spot, a unique place, you know, being able to talk about the books, um, and again, that we've been able to last so long, you know, we're, 
you know, today we're talking about, or we're, we're doing episode 371. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a good length for a podcast. So, you know, it's, it's just exciting to, to be a part of it and then, you know, to have something out there. And I really do hope our, our listeners are enjoying it and, you know, keeping us here. And it's interesting because outside of literary treks, there are very few people who do Star Trek book reviews outside of just like a written format on Goodreads mm-hmm. or maybe a blog or something. There's not really like YouTube channels. There's not really many Star Trek book channels out there. And the ones that do aren't don't post that regularly. Um, so it's it's very hard to find that community, which is why Literary Treks has been so important over the last what decade, because it's been able to fill that 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 hole in the discussion. That's you just a decade. And I, w- I had to think back like it's over a yep. decade now because we yes. started in uh, November, I believe, of 2012. Yeah. And, like that's yeah. insane, man. I feel yeah, real hair's old not now. quite as dark <laughs> as it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> I can say that because I've got uh, I got my own grade. Yeah. I mean, I, it I mean, pictures of myself from then to now. I mean, I have way more gray hair. I mean, I I. It's insane, but no. So, so Jonathan, um, you're new here to literary tracks. And so I, I guess first, you know, one of the big questions that any Star Trek fan kind of gets asked is, you know, what's your favorite Star Trek series? So, um, uh, while I'd watched all of them a little bit, I, I just never could get into TOS, which is like heresy among Star Trek fans. Um, but it just, it never really appealed to me. The shows that is the movies are something different. And then I watched Next Generation with my parents because my dad would turn it on, um, on, you know, reruns and stuff. And it was fine. But the show that got to me was Voyager. Um, my, my brother-in-law told me, uh, hey, I think that you'd like Voyager. I think that the characters, you, you'll enjoy them a lot. And so I turned on the first episode of Voyager and I was hooked. And so I watched the whole, it was the first one that I sat down from episode one and just watched the whole thing. Um, uh, and it's the only Star Trek show I've done that with. The others I've watched through them technically all about once, but it was like a, I would watch some episodes and leave it for a while and then watch episodes. But Voyager really spoke to me. So that was really my gateway outside of the TOS movies. Um, those I watched a lot because my dad would turn them on because he, my dad's very much a light Star Trek fan. He will watch, um, uh, the movies and he watched a little bit of next gen and that's about it. So he's, he's very light in that sense. Um, uh, so that's why that's uh, my, my stuff with that era was only very light until recently. I feel like Voyager is one of those series that like, I liked it when it came out just fine, but over the years, like when I've done rewatches and stuff, it's, it's really grown on me. I mean, Enterprise is the same way, but I feel like Voyager really, you know, gets dumped on sometimes for the big red reset button and stuff like that. But when you really look into it, there's a lot of continuity in it too. I think that one of the reasons that Voyager wasn't didn't work especially when it was on was there was the frustration that it felt like oh come on why aren't we why haven't we gotten home yet and uh they never get home till the finale and so i feel i feel like that frustration was there but on rewatches when you go in knowing they're not getting home till the finale you know that you're much more going in for the character stuff as opposed to ds9 which has character stuff but ds9 there's so much more plot related 
focus in the series. And so you don't get that, fr- that, that frustration on your first viewing necessarily. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, Deep Space Nine specifically, it's so character driven and then the characters drive the plot. And like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, in many ways to me, like Deep Space Nine was the proto, uh, new golden age of television you know when it came to like Mm -hmm. serialization and all that stuff so that i think that's where it just came to be but yeah i mean it's interesting because i've been watching through uh, my my wife and i have been doing a chronological watch of star trek and uh, we started with enterprise we're in tos now and she really enjoyed enterprise like so many times we'd finish an episode and be like what did you think of that one she's like oh i liked it and i'm like fans hate this episode and she'd be like why <laughs> you know so it's it's so interesting to get her perspective on those things so yeah we're making our way through tfos and then you know it, it's a slow rewatch it's going to take a long time but it, it's been fun to do so okay voyager here's your favorite show so then what are maybe some of your favorite star trek books so uh my favorite star trek books are actually some of the first ones i read um uh and you know, I knew nothing about Star Trek books, but I was a convert from John Jackson Miller because I had read his Star Wars books and loved them. And he was the first author that I really said, I'm going to read whatever he writes. And I thought, well, I'm not at the time. I wasn't big into Star Trek too much. Like I watched a little bit of the shows and stuff, but I was like, he has this Prey trilogy out. I may as well read it. Um, uh, I'm not a big Star Trek fan at the time, but I'll, I'll, I'll read what, what John writes. So I delved into the Prey trilogy, which is in the middle of the post nemesis continuity. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so it's part of that whole thing, which was a little bit daunting, uh, which is why I tried to listen to every conversation that John had about that trilogy so that I could understand it, understand what was happening, mm-hmm. um, in universe. But, uh, so he brought me over for reading those, uh, and those are still the, the Prey trilogy and his standalone takedown are still my absolute top Star Trek books. I would also say that some of the one others that I've gotten to more recently, I think the fall is this other series, the, the only multi-author series that I w- like would put up there with Prey. Um, just I thought the fall was a brilliant series. And uh, there's been some some other standalones that I've really enjoyed. I'd say that uh, in particular, I've liked I've really liked Keith the Candido's Klingon mm. stories. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, which is really funny that that's the one we're doing today. Yeah. Too, <laughs> one of his Klingon stories. Um, uh, and then I uh, I also really enjoyed a few ones that I've read recently, like DS9. The show wasn't a favorite of mine, but of the characters to follow in the books, I think that the DS9 characters have been the most fascinating in the books, particularly Julian Bashir and um, also like following a couple like Nog and a few others. So some of those like um, uh, Force in Motion by Jeffrey Lang oh, yeah. and yep. um, The Missing by Una mm-hmm. McCormick. Those are not big books and like huge things are happening like the like like the big trilogies, but they they still really worked for me. So I'd say those are my nice favorites. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I love it too. And and what I love as well is that you know it it it's fun to be able to have you exploring the Star Trek books now. Like that, you know, you, you like had your entryway, you you know, your gateway mm-hmm. uh, through John Jackson Miller, and you know now you're just just getting to discover it all which is is fantastic and and 
one of the things I think I love about this is just the way in which I think the golden age of Star Trek books, which was, you know, after uh, Next Generation and then Nemesis, mm-hmm. the movie. Um, yeah. So much of what they did, I think, just really create it's, – it's like the EU of Star Wars, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they really just kind of in many ways had free reign and I think they just did such a good job and, and so many of those books I've loved. So, all right. I, I realized, you know, you mentioned that you have watched, you know, all the Star Trek movies. And so what is your favorite Star Trek movie? Uh, um, uh, you know, the the one that I, I think I uh, the, the one that has been my favorite ever since I got into Star Trek and is still the one that I have the most fun with is The Voyage Home. Um, just because it's such a fun movie. It's <laughs> one that I, I quote, like, if you say the word vessel in my house with my family, <laughs> one, someone is going to say nuclear vessels. Um, it's just going to happen. And like, so things like that about the movie just really endear me to it. Um, uh, but I also have to realize that, um, uh, Undiscovered Country, I think is like the quote best Star Trek movie. Um, in terms of telling a traditional Star Trek storyline. Um, uh, and so they're two tonally and creatively like opposite movies that I would like put really close together. I just think that Voyage Home is like if you said just turn on a movie for fun, I'm going to turn on Voyage Home. Nice. So hmm. it's a good yeah, answer I like this Star guy. Trek 6. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Star Trek 6 <laughs> is, is also my favorite Star Trek movie as well. And I also believe it to be. The best Star Trek movie, uh, and I would say, you know, like if you're talking best, it's like there's Star Trek Six and and you know the Wrath of Khan that are just right. vying yeah, for, everyone... for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet Star Trek Six just wins out for me, and and I just I think it's so good. So, uh, man, well, I'm so excited too that um, you know you are a fan of Keith the Canado, and so Casey, I I don't know, maybe we should talk about the Art of the Impossible. Bust out the markers and make some art. This book is a part of the Lost Era series. uh, And, you know, we have been talking through that now. Uh, The last uh, that we did the Excelsior book, uh, The Sundered. And this book uh, takes place uh, through quite a a large chunk of time. Um, We get from 2328 to 2346 and so there's a lot that happens in this book and and really the the crux of the book casey i love the way you kind of put it in the outline is that it revolves around the conflict between the cardassians uh and the klingons um and them basically fighting over a planet that they both want for completely different reasons um and I found the fact that we were pitting the Cardassians against the Klingons such just an interesting idea in general for this book because up until this point, the Cardassians really haven't played into um, the the storyline of Star Trek as we had known it, you know, especially with TOS. But this book basically introduces them into the stage of galactic politics – um, and really kind of getting ready for everything they're going to be a part of in the next generation, as well as Deep Space Nine. 
Yeah, one of the things that I kind of was thinking about, like even even as reading it, but after kind of sitting with it after finishing it too, was like, was this really a story, or was this conflict in particular between the Cardassians and the Klingons? A was that something we needed? Is that a story? Was that a gap that we were missing? Like, oh, I just wish I knew how the Cardassians and the Klingons interacted during this time period. And I mean, I kind of fell on no, but. You know, at the same time, like you were saying, this is kind of, this is like pre-Tarak Nor, even. I mean, Tarak Nor gets a shout out as it's like being built. So this is really the Cardassians starting to become kind of a front runner for an antagonist for the Federation and even apparently some of the other ones too. But, um, you know, kind of at the end of the day, I was, you know, as interesting as this story was and, and the politics between them, this is one of those stories or one of the, the pieces of the stories in this book that I'm, I'm not sure, like, I didn't totally dislike it, but I'm also just not sure, like, if this is what I really wanted. When I think of the lost era, you know, between Star Trek Generations, you know, Enterprise B era and the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation, do I care what the Cardassians and Klingons are doing, or especially in a kind of a special event series that was coming out, you know, with five or six books or however many at the time. So it was something that I was kind of like not as into earlier in the book um, until maybe a little later as, as other events were happening. And this particular one was kind of winding up, I guess. The the for this, me this one I thought it was interesting that um, uh, it's so broad. You look at the other the timelines of the other two books. It's uh, there's about like the other the other books that you've covered are like a year or maybe two years or something like that. You look at you look at this one. It covers what like uh, eighteen years in the timeline, and so that just sets it so apart from the design of the other books. Um, uh, which can can help it in some ways um, and can hurt it in others, but the the crux of being about the Cardassians versus the Klingons, I think, is really interesting because they're both very militant, very um, uh, uh, war focused uh, groups. Although one puts huge emphasis on honor, and the other puts huge emphasis more on deception, I guess. Um, uh, and so it is interesting to see how two militant groups with different focuses in their militarism uh, are, a- are able to work together or rather not work together, uh, as we see in the book. Yeah, it's interesting, Casey, because, um, you know, to me, this book became and, and like what you were saying, Jonathan, this book became about the ties that bind like the thing that began to bind this uh, time period of the galaxy together, especially with what's to come. And so to introduce the Klingons and the Cardassians having a scuffle, basically, that kind of catapults them onto the stage of galactic politics and throws in then the Federation as well as, you know, with the Romulans and everything – um, tying into the the background of you know uh, Worf's family history and you know tying all that together, uh, this uh, you know um, maybe I'll show my hand here, but to me this book was an incredibly written story in the fact that it's bringing all these things together in a way that man 
if you wanted to create a new Star Trek series, mm-hmm. this is it. Because of all of the interconnected political storylines that are going on, the character storylines that are happening. I mean, this felt like a very well-written, almost Game of Thrones-ish type of story with all the political intrigue that's happening uh, between the different species here, uh, especially with the Romulans and the Cardassians and the Klingons and how they're all kind of uh, using their... um, you know, secret intelligence organizations to fight against one another while at the same time trying to put on a specific front, you know. And to me, that was the thing that was I, I was really gravitating towards with this book is that it was just so interesting. There's so many interesting things happening. There's so many um, – there's so much uh, Machiavellian action happening behind the scenes with everyone and I was really appreciating that. But then, of course, one, Keith the Candido is fantastic in writing Klingon. So we were getting uh, all of that. I'm getting more on the background of Worf and his family, um, mm-hmm. you know, before he gets adopted and the Kittimer massacre, all of that. Um, and then I'm also getting a chance to learn about the Cardassians in this period, which to me was, it was like, you were asking, do I need this? I was like, this is everything I didn't know I always wanted. Like <laughs> that that's kind of how I ended up with this book. Um and so for me I I just I didn't know what to expect especially since the Sundered I think really left me kind of sour in some ways and I was like, "Oh, is this going to mm-hmm. be another series where I just I'm not really enjoying it?" And the setup here I think led to even more than I ever thought possible that this book was going to be about. And I think that was something that I was just really struck by. The idea of the book not being what, like having being more than you expected is how I felt with the existence of Troy in the book. I did not expect to see um, uh, Troy at all in the book. And that was one of those things that I didn't know I needed to get some of the stuff on Deanna's dad. I did some of the background on him, but as I was reading the book, uh, between learning about uh, his connection with Luxwana, learning about his um, uh, 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 how he how he met her, and then also how everyone's kind of uh, ribbing him for 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 marrying someone from Beta Z, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know I needed this in this book because like that's not what it was pitched as, but I'm loving it. I'm 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 good with that. Yeah, and I think I, I guess you know for me like there was a, it's I don't know how to say this. I wasn't bored during this book. I'll say that. And, and it, it was, it was pretty quick, uh, to get through, like, cause it, it moved. And I mean, you got 18 years to cover in a book. So it, it moves. And I can kind of after, after listening to you guys a little bit too with the Cardassians, I mean, I, or with the, the Cardassians and Klingons, it's, you know, that is something that we can't wrap up in a couple of years. You know, we're not going to have two very different, although still similar, you know, uh, peoples uh, colonize a planet and then do this, you know, crazy competition. Basically, that Curzon Dax put them into, and and have it resolve in a couple of years. I mean, obviously, it's going to be. I mean, you know, you had these, you know, the prefect and the governor or whatever their titles were there for ten, fifteen years or something like that, which is is kind of more realistic and it's, um, 
and and maybe for me it was more the setup at the beginning and and not expecting this conflict. So I'm thinking like, you know, I see Worf like General Worf on the cover, and or maybe that's Moog. I don't know, you know, but um, uh, on the cover, and I think okay, this is going to be a Klingon story, and it is. And you get the Kling or the Cardassian and the shadow in the background, so there is some intrigue there, but. You know, say what you will about the Romulans and how much we get them. I kind of almost wanted more of the Romulans, especially in maybe even in this Cardassian Klingon. We we don't see the Romulans come in until later, and I I kind of like the Romulans, and so I almost would have liked to see them just peppered in just a little bit, and or unless I missed something, I guess. <laughs> see, I can I can actually a hundred percent agree with you on that though I, I think that's a fair criticism maybe of the book is that it would have been nice to see maybe uh, a few more scenes with the romulans especially with their part in this story um i mean it's enough to to get how they basically pull the strings mm-hmm. uh and make a lot of this stuff happen, but so do the Cardassians at the same time. And so I th- I think it was interesting because, you know, what I, what we come to know about the Cardassians is how much they are like in many ways, the Romulans. Um, and in some ways I think even worse because it's almost like they're even more self-deluded um, and more uh, grandiose. And so I, I almost wish, you know, I know the book is long, but it's like I could have had it be even longer if we were getting even more background with like the Romulan plot going on here as well. So, I mean, I I can't disagree and say that I wouldn't have wanted more of that because in all honesty, I was enjoying this book so much. It's one of the few times I would say in a in a book like this where I'm like, oh, no, I could have they could have added more to it and I would have been just fine, even though this is already quite a long Star Trek book by comparison to many other Star Trek books. And what's really weird, when I was reading this book, I noticed that just look at the font size of the average Star Trek book that was coming out in the early 2000s, <laughs> and then look at the font size in this book. The font size is so much smaller. So when I got the book in the mail, I saw, oh, it's only 350 pages. That's going to be a really <laughs> quick, really quick read. And then I open it up and I'm like, this is taking much longer than I thought because <laughs> yeah. it's just literally that much, that many more words per page. Um, it doesn't mean it was bad. It just means that right. it was you yeah. know, a lot different. And I think that I would actually uh, push back and say I would have done one of two ways. I would have either made it longer and turned this in and of itself into a trilogy. I think that you could have really done more character development with the different characters and also added in more of the Romulans. If each part in this book was its own separate book, which I think Keith could have done, or I think that they should have focused the book and not made it so broad and cut out the, the Romulan elements of it um, and made it more focused on the Klingons V Cardassians and just made it a shorter book. I think that one of those two things mm-hmm. would have worked well. Um, uh, I just felt that it was just, the, it, this book had so much going on, which was cool, but it was a little bit, uh, uh, it, what, what's the, a mile wide and an inch deep is how I felt in some ways. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I can see what you're saying, but I think I enjoyed it all too much. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and again, 
what what both of you are saying in the sense of like seriously you, i if keith had made this like a duology you know i i, I think mm-hmm. um casey this is a book that could have been a duology you know we've yes. <laughs> we've read some trilogies that should have been duologies right this feels like a book that was had so much good stuff in it that you could legitimately have seen them expanding it to two books Mm-hmm. with no problem and it and actually i think making it better rather than worse um and yeah. i guess jonathan what you're saying because of the experience that we've had on literary treks where there's too many books where it's been stretched like you know butter over too much toast to quote bilbo like i'd rather have this than that <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Get that. So yeah, that's the I, problem is I would you'd have that many more books to try to cover because it is it is daunting how is. many there are. Yeah. Well I think too with um with this one, like it, you know, both of you, like a duology or a trilogy, because I think, you know, for me I I especially loved I did love the second half of this book when when we get to things like Kittimer and you know some of the other events like when we're really kind of just touching on some of the other things that were history but I wanted more I wanted more Kittimer I wanted more you know of some of these other things that were going on so like you know almost put book one is Cardassians and Klingons mostly just about this planet that they're on and kind of the political intrigue that's happening there and then book two we were kind of bringing in the Romulan subplot and some of the stuff on uh um the Starfleet ships and stuff and then book three it's kind of tying those together maybe ultimately leading to Kittimer because Kittimer once we got there I was like oh finally this like Kittimer is what I was I didn't, it wasn't what I was wanting in this book in particular, but from the lost area, you know, it's something we hear about so much. We know that Worf's parents supposedly died and, you know, they were framed by Duras and, and, and all this stuff. And it was like, I wanted, I wanted to see so much more of that. And I felt like Kittimer was kind of like a, it, it felt to me as I was reading it, like, uh, oh, I, I need to put a chapter in there about Kittimer and I need to show that happen. And, and that's, as I was reading, I was like, man, this is it. Like I wanted, I wanted more, like they're, there felt like there needed to be more there for me. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know in all the uh, both of your criticisms in some ways. I think I'm I'm there with you in the sense I just yeah I could have totally had more of this and I could have had this be you know two books or three books and I would have been sublimely happy because <laughs> what. Keith, I think, is giving us in this book is so good, right? I, I think his 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 writing style, his understanding of the the material, his understanding of the characters that he's writing and and everything is is so good. Um, I wanted to ask you just as we were talking about the the Cardassians and the Klingons, one of the things that I found really really interesting, and I and I think this is also a place that if you had had, you know, more than one book th- th- to cover this. Um, I loved the juxtaposition of a people who are willing to sell their history for the future and a people who that might hold on too tightly to their past at the expense of the future. And that to me was really, really interesting because it's one of the things that I think sets the Klingons and the Cardassians apart. Um, and I think it also makes for some very interesting commentary, which, you know, one of the things that we love about Star Trek is the way that it helps us to be able to think about 
our own lives and in, 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 in the universe that we inhabit. And that is, I think those are, those are two ways of life, which are, I think this book kind of shows, um, neither of them are preferable. There, there's, there's probably a better way. And I just, I almost wish that theme had been able to be explored more because of it. I did really like that at the beginning they set up that there is a reason that the Klingons are so worried that uh, about about someone else uncovering the, the 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 remains there, and so it was interesting reading the book that essentially to the Klingons the the world doesn't particularly have a strategic value to them. I mean, they they, they try to find mm-hmm. reasonings for why it does so they can hold on to it. But in reality, it's all about protecting that secret about uh, the dishonor and stuff with with that house. And it's interesting how uh, compare that with the the Cardassians where they do, they really don't care about exposing a house or anything mm-hmm. uh, that information but the the getting those resources gaining the upper hand on the Klingons is what's so important to them so I loved that sequence near the end of the book where uh, the they're revealing everything mm-hmm. and the they're like really that's it that's what that's why you guys were so worried <laughs> yeah. about this like man we've been fighting over nothing really like really and so i really i i thought that was a great setup and payoff in the book yeah like the klingons all they care about the ship is the ship you know they don't care about the planet and then the cardassians they want the mineral that's you know they want to mine the planet and you know and i feel like it was kind of an unintended consequences of you know how everything played out because curzon you know is being uh kind of a, a mediator i guess you know he's the kind of uh uninterested third party i guess you know that's kind of helping negotiate this and um purposely sets the cardassians on the side of the planet that has a ship and purposely sets the klingons on the side of the planet that has all these minerals that they want to that the cardassians want to mine and says you know so basically they both got the exact opposite of what they wanted and you know it's which is pretty great and you know, and then 15 years later, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should probably go take care of that, shouldn't I? But he's like almost forgotten about it, which was a little disappointing for Dax, but um, maybe in line with what Curzon does. But, you know, and, you know, and Matthew, to your point, too, it's like, I, you know, this is one of those plots that does what what we want our Star Trek to do and, and does it in the novels. And that's something, you know, that we've mm-hmm. talked about before is, you know, getting our tie in fiction to do the things that we like from what we're tying mm-hmm. into. And so, you know, seeing, yeah. seeing, um, you know, what the Cardassians and Klingons are doing, like holding on to these things. Uh, and now the other one has what we want. I mean, we see that in, on our own planet all the time. Mm-hmm. You have what I want. I have what you want. And we're actually going to fight about it now rather than like sit down and negotiate. And then, you know, and you know, it, and it, ultimately no one ends up very happy with what they end up getting. And, you know, so it's kind of ironically funny, I guess, or something, you know, to, to watch this play out going, Oh, we do that too. And, and there's nothing they can do. Like they can keep fighting and wasting resources, which was kind of the whole purpose of making them settle on, you know, other sides of the planet. So they're not wasting or they don't even have the resources to build up their ships just to wage a war to, get whatever you know so you know it was it was a really good um 
a good way there that he kind of mirrored not necessarily anything specific that was going on. And maybe there was something specific in the news at the time, you know, that was in the real world, but something that he's showing that, Hey, no, this is us. This isn't Cardassians and Klingon. This is humans, humans and humans, you know, and I, I did kind of like that, that little uh, look in the mirror, I guess. You know, it's interesting too, because you, you mentioned Curzon, and his solution, which I found so interesting because in, in some ways it, it's almost like a uh, a King Solomon thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to yes. split it mm-hmm. and then, you know. But but the thing that was so interesting was the way in which – and this is where I really loved, you know, having Curzon there and having him be a part of this um, where he – realizes, look, you know, I knew and I know a ton about Klingons, but I completely misread and misunderstood who the Cardassians are, which, again, I think really added to this time, this time period where the galaxy is really learning about Cardassians for the first time, because it's, 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 it's when they kind of become a part of the galactic struggle um and insert themselves into you know as we were talking about earlier galactic politics and i i found that to be really interesting and so to have curzon make this mistake even though i don't know how he could have not made this mistake because i mean he's just going off of this experience he has as a negotiator and it um and that well, he doesn't have a ton of experience with Cardassians. And so um, he's kind of basing it on what he knows of other races. And he just miscalculates who the Cardassians are. And, and it kind of costs everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And But at the same time, everybody's making miscalculations about everyone at this point because they're all figuring one another out. And, and I, I think that that kind of um like political malaise that's happening there that that kind of like uh that soup that you're in that almost and, and it's like a fo- the fog of the cold war here that's happening yeah. between all of these uh powers because it's not it's not a hot war but it is definitely cold and there are some skirmishes that happen kind of in, in much in line with what we would have gotten in our Cold War with 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 Russia as the United States had. But, yeah, that that part I like I really, really enjoyed. And I thought it, Keith had done a great job in building that out. And and again, as we talked about earlier, it's it's one of those places where. It it almost felt like there was always a place where you could have had more on every part of the book, um, to to continue to add into that. And so, uh, but I I just found that incredibly fascinating. It was interesting that Curzon is in an interesting place because you know the 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 Federation tries to be that neutral arbiter, and for the most part, he is a neutral arbiter. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. Uh, you know, they just, you know, fairly recently in their history, what, like 20 or 30 years ago, made a deal with the Klingons at Kittimer and have been slowly becoming allies with them. Mm-hmm. So even though they're kind of neutral in this position, they kind of do have to, 
the, the Klingons have to have a good outcome here. And uh, Curzon's solution reminded me of when you have two kids on the playground fighting and the principal calls in the parents and says, all right, we're going to have a play date. The two kids are going to play together and we're going to make them <laughs> yes. get along. And then it just does not work because it's two totally different personalities. I'm a teacher, so this is my, you know, that's my kind of analogy. <laughs> that's how it felt because Curzon's like, all right, you both can take the planet and then we'll see who, um, uh, you know, whoever is respectful, you know, uh, we'll get it. We'll get the planet. And then neither one of them is respectful and both of them start doing bad stuff. And he's like, all right. Uh, and he should have, he should have said, neither of you gets the planet. Yeah. Uh, we'll take Should have had planet. like someone else. <laughs> yeah. We'll take the planet. Yeah. That's what he should have done. But Curzon, Curzon doesn't do that. It, it does make me wonder how much foresight he was like that Curzon put into this because you get the impression like in all the different Curzon stories that we get that he was, you know, very good at what he did, you know, he's you know friend with the Klingons and he was a good ambassador and negotiator and stuff like that. But, you know, especially by the end of this book, there is some kind of, and again, it's, it's hard to know is, is Curzon being playful when he's like, Oh yeah, I kind of forgot about that place. I should probably go back and check on them, which is, it's also kind of a Star Trek trope that we, we put people on a planet and then we just disappear and we never see yep. them again. So exactly. you know, in this time he's being called out on it. So, um, yeah, he needed the know, California I, class that, to come along for second exactly. contact, you know, and make exactly. sure that things got cleaned up. Um, maybe yeah. he has that cleanup ship. You know, we always make the joke here on the network that um, Kirk has that ship that follows him around to clean up his messes. You know, maybe Curzon yeah. needed that <laughs> ship, too. So um, yeah. one, of, one of the things that I mean, we've as we've been talking about the book. Um, one of the things that this book has, and, and part of that is because of the time period that it covers, you know, the the extensive time period, we we do have a lot of characters that we know from other parts of Star Trek that play into this book. Uh, and Jonathan, you mentioned, of course, the fact that we get Ian Troy here and we learn about him. We've got Elias Vaughn. Uh, we've got Curzon Dax. We've got uh, Moog, uh, the son of Worf. The father of Worf. Um, we get, you know, Rachel Garrett. And so we we get a lot of these characters and we get more of their stories here. And I guess the question was, and Casey, I think that the way that you phrased it on the outline was really interesting. There are a lot of characters where there are too many different characters in this book. Or did you feel like um, it was justified, you know, with the amount of time that we're covering in this novel yeah one of one of the risks i think that we always have especially in a period like this is the the small universe syndrome or the small world syndrome where it's just like wow we got a lot of people who we've already heard about that are in a room together or just even in the same book and i i think um for the most part because again because of the time period that this is taking place there We've got a lot of very young people who will grow into people that we we know and love. You know, Elias Vaughn was um, somebody who was created, I think, around like in the Lost Era books, maybe or or somewhere, and was one of those characters that that sounds like they were intending to be long lived and to show up later and in, in whatever, or maybe he came along in Deep Space Nine and then we brought him back here. But um, there's there's a few mentions like Uhura gets a mention. She shows up once and it's kind of like, eh, I don't know if we needed that. That was kind of maybe a little bit forced for me. But I feel like um, the way that these candle candle 
I feel like the way that these characters were used was actually really well done because we've got Commander Rachel Garrett. She's not a captain. She's about to take command, I think, of the Enterprise C or she knows it's up for grabs, something like that. And so we know that's coming. Um, you know, Curzon obviously, you know, is somebody that, that we like to see. This time period is also the time when, you know, Worf is a young child and Kittimer, you know, we're in that period after Kittimer where there's going to be an attack. Um, and even Kempek and seeing him become chancellor, seeing the arbiter of succession and him winning this, you know, battle, like all these people getting put in their places and getting set up for the future, um, just worked. And they're just, I felt like they were pretty well utilized for the, for the most part. And Ian Troy, especially like, I think Jonathan, you said earlier, like this is, this is not a character I was expecting to see in here. And, um, when we did and we started getting to know him, it, it made his story through the book that much more impactful for me and, and was probably one of my favorite parts of the story was having him in there and, and learning more about him. Cause he's just one of those characters that we've gotten a name and a face before and that's it. And so, you know, as far as all these characters are concerned, like this is, this is one of those rare times where I'm like, you know, bring on the characters, you know, I, I, you know, if, if we're going to, if Keith is going to use them this well, then, then do it except for maybe Uhura. <laughs> like that, that's the thing is I agree with there being uh, a lot of great characters. Uh, my problem is like, I'm like, I feel like it should, someone should have been cut, but I don't know who mm-hmm. I don't know. Like if you had to say, like, who do you cut in this? I really don't know because, you know, Ian works really well. Elias works really well. Um, Rachel Garrett works well. I think the reason that um, Elias works particularly well and doesn't feel quite as Easter eggy is because he's a character who is exclusive to the books, has absolutely no connection in the the, the shows. Uh, whereas Ian is the type of person where it's like, because because you see the name Troy, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. it's a it's a Troy from Beta said, or you see Rachel Garrett, who's from the the, the Enterprise C. Uh, so that was one where I was like, I wouldn't cut Elias because he's one of those that is such a niche um, uh, reference that it doesn't feel like it's over overstretching. I feel like if we had seen more, like if we had seen more of Uhura, or if we had seen. Uh, uh, even Picard or someone else show up, I would have been like, okay, that's that's that's, that's that, that is for drop. sure too much. <laughs> he doesn't get a name drop, yeah, but he doesn't yeah. get like he's he's not present. He's on, not there. The yeah. yeah, I think um, one of the things that I, I like the way that I think you both have have talked about this because you know i found myself especially with i was thinking through this with with the rachel garrett character the way that keith uses her in this story just makes me want to then read her book in this series um but also because this time period covers the time period where the enterprise you know goes back from yesterday's enterprise and then is destroyed it's it's so heartbreaking Right. Like, you know, you you know what's going to happen and then you're reading the book and it happens and you're like, man, I just want more of this character. And and again, this is one of those things where I always kind of wish that this time period was the one that they decided to play in instead of Discovery, because I think it's so much more rich um, with uh, opportunities 
with things like this happening. And I think, again, this book really shows that if you're going to play in a time period, play between the the original series and the next generation um, because, you know, trying to fill in a 10-year gap is ridiculous compared to uh, almost 100-year gap. Um, and this book, I think, brings that to light with all of these different types of characters that you can utilize, you know, and, and, you know, I think like Ohura, you know, having her be there was kind of interesting because, um, we kind of have known that she went into Starfleet intelligence, right? But we've never really seen her. So just to kind of see her as like a, a, a true cameo, um, was, was just interesting. And then of course we know, um, as we see that, you know, sh- she's also in an upcoming book in this series that, you know, stars Cisco. Um, so that makes me then interested to kind of maybe see how she plays into that and all. So, yeah, I think this is, this is also, again, when you're doing this much time in a book, it's like it, it also lends itself to having more characters and being more Easter eggy because, you have the time to do it. And, and in, like you were mentioning, Jonathan, a lot of these books where you, you're covering maybe a year, you know, it's when you're trying to cram all of that into that amount of time. It's like, okay, that's, that's too much. But when you have 18 years and, you know, um, the vast swath of, of story that we're covering here in the sense that we're using Cardassians, Klingons, Romulans, and the Federation, it I think it just lends itself to being able to have this and and not feel like, really, we're gonna do that. We're gonna bring that character in, you know, whereas other books that we've read where you're like, okay, yeah, you're just doing that so you can put them on the cover and, you know, make more money, even though they're in the book like five minutes. So yeah. um and I think originally I had thought that there's maybe too many Easter eggs, but, you know, especially as we're talking and, and about these and, and like you said, Matthew, like 18 years, of course, we're going to get Easter eggs. There's a lot that happens at 18 years, you know, and so, you know, I I think when I was my just initial thoughts, you know, when I was kind of putting some notes on the outline and everything, I was like, I kind of I think we maybe went a little overboard with the Easter eggs, but I don't know, not now, especially talking to you guys and kind of thinking about it more. It's like, yeah, maybe maybe it was kind of just the right amount or, you know, so. yeah. Well, I mean, was there anything else that stood out to you about the book, either good or bad? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say the thing about um, Worf was that uh, first, I'm just frustrated that they both have the same name. Yeah. They don't have like a last name or any other modifier to it. That is a frustrating. But I like that the book clarified it because I thought... It was um, that wharf that we see in Undiscovered Country was like a uncle or something like that. I think I had read that somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then this, it makes it out that it's his grandfather. Um, uh, so it's wharf, son of Moog, son of wharf. And I like that we got that understanding and we got that, you know, the, f- the first wharf dies. And so then everything goes on to, to Moog and then Moog dies and then everything goes on to wharf. And he's kind of outside of the family, outside of the, the, the Klingon empire with the Rizankos. And you're like, man, he just, the, 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 the wharf clan, which they don't have like a house of title like others do, but man, the house of wharf, they go, they have it rough in this book. Um, uh, and I thought I actually really liked that. Cause I thought that it's a good setup for where, 
you know, our Worf that we know, uh, our Worf is by the time he gets the next generation, you, you understand why he's so, so hard and embittered because he's just had a rough life up to this point. Well, it kind of shows too why he, he feels like he needs to prove himself as a Klingon because, you know, it's, it has been rough for him. And I, I did like too with, with General Worf or whatever, how when he's kind of telling the story like, oh yeah, I had to represent Kirk and McCoy in a trial way back when, and I didn't want to, but I did my job. And, you know, he was kind of basically like, I'm, I got assigned to do this thing and I did it, you know, and I would be kind of, it's like, how much honor is that? That's like awesome. You know, like it's, he's like, I did what I was told and I tried to do my best job doing it. It was like, that's awesome. <laughs> like I didn't get the impression ever that he, I thought he was some, you know, ally, not necessarily like he was obviously like court appointed lawyer, but he truly felt that in the movie, you know, like he was saying what he believed, not just what he was supposed to say. I like that you, 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 you went to the, the wharf story because, you know, one of the things that this did for me and, and for me being a huge deep space nine fan um, and actually loving the fact that I think Worf becomes a fully rounded character because of that show. This made it so much more rich to finally see him get there, right? Through Deep Space Nine, where you where you see his history, right? You were talking about the idea earlier of, of, of Klingons and, and their love of history for themselves. I think this really added for me to the wharf story so that now as I'm kind of watching him progress through the next generation and then deep space nine, having this in the background, I think makes it all the better. Um, and it, it enriches then those stories you see with what happens in, um, the TNG era and all the trouble he goes through there. And then, you know, to see him finally get to that place where, He's the one challenging the chancellor, you know, and then handing it off to to Martok and that that he becomes the very thing that he really did always want to be in the end, which is a Klingon full of honor who truly actually understands what that word means. Like this, I think, really adds to that story, which is is Casey, we've mentioned so many times like in tie-in fiction, that's what you want. You want a book that helps you to not only enjoy what you you watch, but adds to it. You know, it mm-hmm. cr- creates you seeing it through an, a different lens. You know, from a, a certain point of view. And I think this this book really does that. So, um, with with all we've talked about, I can't wait to kind of see where both of you fall with your ratings and so jonathan uh our newest member here uh what would you rate the arts of the impossible uh i gave it like a six out of ten i enjoyed it um so it's it gets a positive rating for me like uh i wouldn't I wouldn't say it's uh, a favorite of any of them and i think even if you think about thinking about keith's uh Klingon books it's it's not a favorite of mine but there are there are certain moments in this book particularly the whole banquet sequence um uh and then some of the stuff with Troy and the house of Worf and the Kinemer stuff that I would put as like some of the top tier 
parts of the book that were like really solid. And then the stuff for me with the Romulans was, was the stuff that just, what just, just didn't work um, in it. So I think, think six out of 10 is good that it's a, it's, it's entertaining, but not a favorite. Yeah. I ended up, you know, going with uh, on Goodreads. It's a three out of five. I, I, Right, I yeah. would I would bump it up to a a, a three and a half probably um, especially based on our discussion here. Um, there's and and I definitely you know <laughs> appreciate these types of discussions because it did, it did give me more of an appreciation for the book and you know there's there's holes I want filled now you know in these stories I want I want more which is what more could you ask for from a book you know and and one of the things you know we didn't really get into the end of Ian Troy's storyline in this book, but I don't know about either of you, but I did not see it coming. And even as it was happening, I was almost in denial about it, even though it was kind of one of those, those things that was meant to be, you know, as far as our, our history of Star Trek goes. And it was, um, it was one of the, I, I, I wasn't like in tears or anything, but I was, I was moved, um, you know, by, by his ending. And, um, you know, that, that alone was, you know, by, by getting there was like, I have just witnessed an entire storyline with one character in one book. And, you know, that alone really made me appreciate it. But even still, like some of the, you know, trying to cover 18 years in a book is, is tough, but, you know, and, and, Keith is definitely one of those top Star Trek authors that I wish we could bring back, you know, into the fold of, you know, writing these, these Star Trek books. But yeah, for this one, I'd, I'd say I'd give it a, a three and a half, a three on Goodreads. Yeah, for me, um, I absolutely love this book. Uh, I think it's, you know, and, and maybe it just comes from in, in the sense that, you know, Casey and you and I have read so many stinkers, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, in all honesty, I think throughout last year it was kind of a struggle, but uh, I give this a five out of five, ten out of ten. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I really, uh, uh, to me, it felt like kind of that prestige television type of material where there's just again, it's all that political intrigue, and 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 I think. I, what we talked about, it's like, oh, I could have just had this could legitimately have felt like have been a duology, maybe even a trilogy, but at least a duology. And I just would have, you know, ate it up. So um, this this is the type of story that, yeah, I really want more of. And I I like the fact that. I was left wanting more of it than being like, wow, when is this going to end, you know, and and so uh that it it could be that I'm I'm being a little ge- generous, but I just I liked it so much, and so uh, I'm really glad that we got a chance to read it, and um, I can't wait to you know get to the other books, man. Uh, you know, knowing that the Rachel Garrett one uh, is the next one um, in this series, I'm I'm super excited to dive into that one just because, well. I I love her as a character and her story, and it's so sad that we know how it ends, but I hope <laughs> that book is, you know, as good as this one. <laughs> well, wow. What a what a great discussion. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, so good to have – it's always great having new voices on here, but Jonathan, I, you know, I can't wait to continue through, you know, journeying through the books, you know, with you and, um, you know, Matthew obviously is not – 
not leaving for good, but we'll, you know, definitely miss you when you're not around and can't wait for you to come back when, when you're able, uh, you know, to, to join us. But, um, yeah, this today was, was great. You know, I was, I was really excited to get into this book and, and this discussion and I couldn't have asked for better. Thanks for having me on. This has been, this was fun. I'm glad, I'm glad to have people to talk Star Trek with because in my area, they, they, there really is no one. <laughs> Man. Well, welcome. Well, yeah, welcome to the TFM family, Jonathan. And I'm super excited just to have you guys continue this show. And, you know, I, I will love being on when I can with you guys. And at the same time, I'm so thankful that, you know, have two people here who really appreciate and love, you know, Star Trek, but also Star Trek books in the way that both of you do. And so I think uh, that uh, I couldn't have asked, you know, for better. And so uh, before we get out of here, though, uh, Jonathan, uh, introduce where everybody can find you if they'd like to see what else you've got going on outside of literary tracks. So for book reviews, I have a YouTube channel uh, with Jonathan Cohn. You can find I do book reviews of all types of genres. I do fantasy, science fiction. I do tie in fiction like Star Wars and Star Trek. I do um, uh, uh, John Grisham books, all that type of stuff. So I do a lot of books on there. And then I also actually write Star Trek book reviews in a written format, both on my Goodreads and also for um, uh, Roku Depot. Uh, And then I uh, have a Twitter account at Jonathan Cohn where I talk about all – if you want movie stuff or TV stuff, that's where I talk about that stuff. That's awesome. And goodness, people, uh, Jonathan – reads more books than anyone that I know. Uh, And so following his reviews is worth it uh, because thank you. Yeah. His, your, your detail uh, in, in the book reviews is fantastic. Uh, And so, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, recommend more following you because in that way, because you, you really do one, you read a ton uh, and two, I think you do a great job with it. So, uh, Casey, where can everybody find you? Well, before that, I'll throw a little uh, praise on Jonathan, too. Like the YouTube channel, too, like the the various um, types of videos between the reviews. But then I always love watching, you know, your, your TBRs for the months or uh, sometimes when you do your kind of top Star Trek series or, you know, your, your different um, different uh subjects i guess of the videos it's it's a lot of fun and i've you know i I love watching people on booktube and you know jonathan included to to figure out what i'm going to read next so more effusive praise for jonathan (laughs) um and so when i'm watching jonathan on youtube you can also find me on uh goodreads letterboxd twitter and instagram at knitting trekkie um, I've also recently, like in this year in 2024, started kind of a blog to do my own written reviews. I've already started falling behind on it, um, but it's at bookbusterreviews.com and um, just kind of more more of a place to keep myself uh, honest, I guess, on my own reviews and get my thoughts down in a in a place that i control you know the the content but uh and then you can also find me on facebook poking around in the babel conference from time to time and matthew uh you know where where are people going to find you uh when they're not hearing your dulcet tones in their ear holes (laughs) (laughs) well uh of course you can find me all over the place on social media 
under Matt Rushing 02, uh, still, of course, in the 602 Club, uh, talking about all of the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek here on the network. Uh, Chris and I do hope to be back to uh, the Orb and Warp 5 with those rewatches as well as soon as we can. And, of course, I'm also on aggressive negotiations over on the Nerd Party Network talking about Star Wars each and every week with John Mills. And then I've got a completed show there, of course, with Drea Kaufman about Harry Potter. Uh, we talked about every single chapter of that series on Owl Post. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.